Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe. Thanks for being with us. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be sharing an interview with Nathan Sheard, uh, who works with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We had a conversation about facial recognition systems and how they're being used uh, by police departments. Also, the ways that... Um, corporate technology firms are benefiting from the increased um, facial recognition systems that are being distributed throughout public police departments, also private security firms in the U.S., but also globally. Importantly, there's been a pushback and there's been a lot of important critiques around the ways that facial recognition systems embolden systemic racism um, and the ways that facial recognition systems, which are often presented as a sort of magic fix to policing, in fact, deepen and uh, underline and exasperate the systemic violence of policing in regards to racism, in regards to gender-based violence. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I think, beyond the critique, which is very important of facial recognition systems, has actually been working with community groups and um, politicians and uh, networks of activists across America to actually concretely challenge uh, the presence of facial recognition systems within policing. And they've been successful. So a number of cities have actually banned facial recognition systems. And there's also been um, a move that has taken place by some of the tech giants in the U.S., including Amazon, to not distribute and sell for the time being uh, facial recognition products. Now, um, this is an evolving situation, uh, and that's why I wanted to track this and to speak with one of the organizers at the Electronic Frontier Foundation in regards to how this is going down right now. So EFF.org is their site, obviously a very important organization, um, looking at the intersections of social movements, technology, and uh, the ways that these critiques of corporate-driven uh, technologies can be mobilized into action. Um, so here's my conversation with Nathan Sheard from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So yeah, so EFF is, the, is a 30-year-old nonprofit. Uh, so we got started in 1990. And really our mission is, you know, we're the, the, the tagline is that we're the leading nonprofit protecting your rights in the digital world. So what does that mean? That means, you know, your right to, to create and to innovate and to have real ownership over the technology that you own and your ability to express yourself without fear of, you know, either corporate or government surveillance. And so as, as that connects to, you know, what, what you, uh, you know, the, the, the face recognition technology, we know that, you know, face recognition technology, there's, there's a number of concerns. That's really, you know, the, the, the piece, the piece that, uh, that, that, we're, we're going to speak a little bit about today uh, kind of covers a range of the, of the different concerns and, and the, and, and the fact that because there are different concerns, for instance, with like, you know, the corporate use of the technology or the government use of the technology, there's a range of different solutions that we should be open to embracing. Um, but certainly when we talk about government use of the technology, there's also a, you know, there it, government use of face recognition, government use of many forms of biometric data collection are inseparable from the impact that they would have, you know, here in, like on your ability, your right to free expression, your right uh, to, you know, to be free from, you know, unlawful searches and seizures. And so, so really, so that's why our position has, has, has been for some time now that really government uses the technology needs to be stopped altogether. So that's, that's really, you know, so, so 
our mission, our mandate to make sure that people can express themselves has a direct relation to the uh, to the to government use of face recognition technology and the the inevitable chilling chilling impact that government use of that technology would have on people's ability to express themselves and to assemble and to and to learn and to ex express and share and learn new ideas um, without fear that just because it's an unpopular idea that it'll have long term impacts on on your life. Oh, well, thanks so much for outlining that. There's a lot there. Um, so sort of illegal search and seizure seizure um, is an issue that I know um, is one that you've looked at a lot, a lot uh, in terms of your work, um, not just at EFF, but beyond that in the, in the legal sphere. Uh, you know, there is such an important campaign in, in New York City around anti-black racism and systemic racism and how that related to police tactics, um, sure. uh, stop and frisk, um, and the whole campaign about that. Um, I think that people, if they try to like understand on like a, a very basic level, that campaign, it would be thought about in terms of like how that plays out on the beat, like on the, on the daily basis of like, the racist tactics of police. Um, could you share with us how, you know, facial recognition systems can actually increase and exasperate like racist police tactics like stop and frisk, for example? Sure. So, and, and, and um, I, I live in the Bay now, but born born and raised New Yorker, and so I'm I'm, I'm quite intimately aware of the racist practices and procedures of the NYPD. And and uh, so there's this idea, you know, that's kind of connected to your question that somehow we will adopt or develop this AI technology that will uh, that will somehow eliminate the the bias in our criminal system. And unfortunately, that is that could not be further from the truth. Actually, what we what we learn and what we see in, through many studies and research um, is that technology, because it's developed by humans and it's used by humans, far more often exacerbates existing biases. And when we look at face recognition technology in particular, we know from the work of Joy Bolomwini um, and you know, Dr. Simna Gebru and Deborah Raji it, um, that you know, through their, I think it's, it's the Gender Shades uh, project that they did together that demonstrated that the technology um, has a disparate efficacy, even, you know, divorced from all of the other biases of the systems in which it's used, the technology itself has a disparate efficacy for, for people who are not young adult white men. So for, for women, you know, there's a 30%, there's a 30% um, more likely error rate for black, for dark skinned women than for, you know, uh, white males. for especially young adult white males. If it also, you know, there, there, and I keep saying young adult white males because also, older people there's less efficacy for younger people right and so we know so the technology even you know divorced from all the other systems in which it's, it's used in does it already comes with its own um biases and, and more and greater likelihood for false matches and we've seen it we've seen that bear out in the criminal system where you know we we know um in detroit for instance a, a gentleman was arrested in front in front of his children because the face recognition system misidentified him as someone who had burglarized the store and he, you know, and, and he was, he was, he was held against his will. He was, you know, taken into custody and ultimately like had, had, had police actually not just simply gone off by the misidentification of the system and actually looked at the picture, they could have identified that this was not the person that they were after. So more, more recently, we, we saw a young, and we saw a, a young black woman, a young, a youth, a youth, in fact, that was, um, 
set, was kicked out of a roller skating rink because the face recognition technology had misidentified her as someone who had been in a physical altercation in, in that facility before. So this is a minor that was sent that was that, that was expelled from this roller skating rink without you know any adult supervision because of the because of this technology, right? And and because of and and likely influenced by the disparate um, efficacy rate of the technology. But it's important to also note though that even if the technology worked 100% accurately, it would still, especially the government use of the technology, would still still be unacceptable because we, we we would not like so it's not you know what i'm advocating for certainly isn't the 100% effective system of monitoring every individual as they visit a medical clinic as they go to their religious institution as they go to you know their, their lgbtq center in their community so we're not so so yes there are the, the technology is is not effective of, across race and gender. It, it's used in systems that are, you know, so if you're using mugshots, mugshot images to populate the database, right? And we know that there's a disproportionate number of black and brown and poor folks in those mugshot databases, it is going to exacerbate the, the biases there. And then even if the biases were divorced, the idea that you have a system that is akin to making every single individual carry, you know, a, a, a identification number on their shirt. And at least if I was carrying an identification number on my shirt so you could identify me, I'd know, and it would take a lot of police manpower to identify every single individual. And I would know if they were coming up and, and forcing me to submit my information. But the, the face recognition is work, works so covertly that, and, and, and it's automated in such a way that you could, you could, you could monitor an entire population of a city covertly without their knowledge um, through the use of, of, the, of this system. And the and we and so and when you tie that to the fact that we know that people act differently when they're being over surveilled, right? There's there have been, you know, we've seen in, in the NY, sticking with the NYPD, we know that after September 11th, there was undue surveillance of Muslim populations in New York City and in New Jersey as well. And and this the studies have shown that people will modify their behavior based off of the fact that they're being surveilled. So the impact that it would have on the way that we engage in society, the way that we share our ideas, the way that we, we communicate with each other is, is completely unacceptable. So it's absolutely biased, but even if it worked properly, it would not be acceptable. Yeah, so I mean, that brings up uh, a point, I think that is super important because often um, mainstream political parties uh, like the Liberal Party here in Canada or elements of the Democratic Party, um, there's sort of this um, mystery that's that's tossed towards, you know, quote unquote, new technologies. Uh, this idea of like innovation will solve um, more systemic issues without them saying that. And I bring this up mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I know I'm familiar with your work in general and 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 I'm just wondering if you could comment a bit, uh, extending on that last point about this idea that, well, there's the critique of the technology, but in that critique of the technology, there's thinking about the ways that technology actually mirrors pre-existing um, systems. So I'm just wondering if you could underline that a bit more in terms of like this idea that um, this could also be like a fix to these issues without actually addressing them. Yeah, so, so, so technology is not magic, and I know we all we're, we're all I, I I want the magic bullets that's going to eliminate eliminate racism and sexism too. I want it, right? But we but technology is not you know given given to given to us from a burning bush uh, on tablets, not from the divine, right? It's actually developed by humans, right? And so we're we're baking in all of our existing 
preconceived ideas and notions and, and beliefs into these systems that we're developing. And then we're populating them with training material that is biased. You know, we, we use the phrase, the phrase bad data in, bad data out. So if you're over-policing a community and, the, and therefore the numbers show that there's a disproportionate number of crime, you know, rate of crime in that community. So then you send, so then the system says, send more police to that area. And then it continues to, to replicate, you know, that, that idea. Um, so these so these systems, because they're developed by humans, because they're used by humans, they are they are it is they are not divorced from the bias that we already have in our society. Um, and so so we have to we have to we have to keep reminding ourselves and, and reminding lawmakers and other you know stakeholders and our community members, our neighbors that these are not you know um, that these 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 are not magic systems. They are actually systems that are developed by humans. And and if we and we have to be extremely intentional about the way, and mind you, like, I'm not against technology. I love technology. I think technology can actually make our government more transparent. It can make, you know, it, it can make our government more efficient, but we have to be really honest and intentional about the ways that we adopt new systems of technology and the ways that we mitigate their risk and the way that we really, and first of all, ask the question, like, not only, like, should, should we use it? Like, what is it? I'm going to take a step back and say, you know, far too often what we do is we develop a system and then we look for reasons to use the system rather than saying, like, what is the problem we're trying to solve and developing a system that solves that problem? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Um, respect. Um, thanks for, for saying that so clearly. I just wanted to point to the issue of, of profit and cash because, like, there's a lot of companies um, that sort of like again it's it's just about like this idea of like oh well we're going to throw regulation out the window because you know startup a or company b is being innovative and we have a policing crisis so we need innovation mm -hmm. um, so a lot of companies are making huge amounts of cash from the situation uh, and there's not a lot of structures of accountability and mechanisms yep. that can monitor what's going on because these are you know Police forces, of course, are publicly funded. Um, so, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could also just highlight that. Yeah, you know, for, first I would say police departments are largely publicly funded, but also a lot of times privately funded too. Um, but, but and but I think so. What's at the core of your question, I think, is the the, the undue role that. Um, capital and vendors play in the decision making around the, the kinds of technologies that are used in our communities. And so one of the things that I've been working on since I started with EFF and actually EFF has been working on, I started with EFF in September of 2017. And EFF has actually been working with the ACLU and other organizations since 2016 on something, the, 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 a broad project that's called Community Control Over Police Surveillance. And what that does is it creates a system through which um, of transparency and accountability so that members of a community and the elected and their elected representatives are aware of the types of technology that are being used by law enforcement and, and other agencies in their community, the policy or like the, the, the use policies that are in place and far too often where there's not community control of police surveillance services, there is no use policy or not an efficient use, effective use policy for how even when is it okay to use this technology. And then also um, that there's research done and the community is made aware of like, what are the potentials for, the, for disparate impact on certain segments of the community and what is going to be done to mitigate that disparate impact, right? Um, because where 
there where these these and there's 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 now I think Boston recently I think last week Boston adopted a community controller police surveillance ordinance I believe they they we're now over 20 cities um in the U.S. that that have that have these um ordinances in place and where they don't exist what we've seen is because of you know where's traditionally you know years ago like you said like there was a public publicly funded so there was presumably some kind of budgeting process that would happen that would decide like how much money goes to the police department and what and what goes to what goes to salaries and what goes to technology and what have to but you know since september 11th especially but certainly predating september 11th as well we, we have like there's federal grants that go to play for police departments there are um you know like I said, pri pri private funds and slush funds and all of these ways in which police departments have been able to acquire arsenals of surveillance technology without even not only just the public knowing, but far too often law enforcement, like the, the sorry, the, the elected officials are not even aware of what is of, of what is um, being being acquired by these police departments. And, and 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 very very often in these situations, the only expert about who's there to say like how the technology works and if it actually works is the is the, the salesperson from the vendor, right? And so what so with these in the places where we've been able to um, have these community control of police surveillance ordinances adopted, what happens is the 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 agency and, and they go there they're generally speaking they apply to all of the city agencies so fire departments and department of the parks and what have you if they want to acquire a new technology you know, the, the 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 parks department wants drones so they can look over and see you know what what kind of damage has happened from fires right um, but you know and and similarly like and and often we'll also see where where other agencies will acquire a technology and then loan it to the police department, right? So that's one of the reasons it's important to make sure that it's, it applies to all of the agencies. Um, and when so, and so an agency, city agency, police department or, or what have you decides they wanna get a technology before they can just go out and buy it, they have to present a use policy to the local city council or the county or the board of supervisors or whatever the local, the local legislative body is. And then they, and, and that information is also made available to the public. And often in the ordinance, it'll say how long it needs to be made available to the public before it can be voted on. So it, um, in, in many instances, I think the longest one is 45 days. I think often there are 30 days. We try to, there's a couple, I think, that are, that are as little as two weeks, but we really try to um, guide lawmakers into adopting at least 30 days, if not more, because that is what, so that the community has an opportunity to inform themselves, to, to find, to speak to experts, to, you know, to, 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 if they need to advocate, like, to organize, to advocate against the adoption or for a modification to these policies. So they have a reasonable amount of time to do that. And then once those use policies and the disparate impact reports are made available to the community, then um, there's an opportunity for the lawmakers, for the elected, for the elected officials to hear from the community members about whether or not that, that they feel like that technology is appropriate for their community. And in many, many cases, the answer is going to be no. Right. And there should and there should also be an opportunity to hear from experts who don't work for the vendor who can say whether that technology actually works or not. Right. So, you know, we've we've, we've seen like recently ShotSpotter where we've 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 learned that in some instances and for folks who are unaware, ShotSpotter is a technology where cities will have microphones placed throughout very often black communities. Um, and But, you know, in, in different communities through through in, in the city and be able by triangulating the sound of a presumed gunshot, try to figure out where that gunshot came from. But we've seen, um, we, we've seen reports at least, where working with police departments, the company that runs ShotSpotter has moved <laughs> the place that they identify a shot came from, like up to a mile um, in some cases, right? From where they, where they initially reported the shot to where 
fit better within the narrative that the police department wanted to put forward, right? And so lawmakers should be able to hear from experts who, who are able to give them a more broad um, understanding of, of whether the technology works. And so they can weigh both the costs in, in actual funds to their community, but also the cost and the risk of, of civil liberties, right? Um, and, and, and in some cases, loss of life. Right. So we know that police police officers get a report that there was a gunshot in a given area. They're going to show up in that area at an, at, at, in, an, in an escalated state of response. Right. And that and we've seen far too often where that has resulted in, in loss of life or physical injury to people in those communities. So lawmakers should know the, the potential outcomes and the potential efficacy of, of that tool before it's adopted. And then not only, so, so, so the, the community knows what, what, how it's gonna be used, the community gets the voice of whether they think it's appropriate or not, the lawmakers vote and say whether, whether they're going to approve that policy or not. Um, and hopefully, and like I said, often the answer is, the answer should be no. Um, but even when they do say, okay, fine, we're going to approve this technology, we decide, you know, yeah, we need to, we need some automated license plate readers so that we can more easily identify uh, stolen cars, right? And so, but it shouldn't be it, with, with and the, with these ordinances, it's not just that like once it's approved, then police department can then just go out and just use it however they want. Every year, in some cases, two years, they have to come back and say, you know, did we use it the way we said we were going to use it? Were there any cases where we mistakenly or otherwise used it in a way that wasn't in compliance with our policy? And if so, what have we done to mitigate the risk of that happening again? And has it been effective? And, you know, so, so we shouldn't just continue to throw money at something that hasn't been effective. So every two years or, or every year in some cases comes back for the legislative body and the community to decide, should it continue to be used? Um, and so, so, that, so again, so I think to bring that back to your question, it's, you know, far too often we see where these decisions are being made in isolation and without um, real robust discussion about what are the actual costs, both financial and otherwise, to the community. Thanks for that breakdown. Um, super helpful. Um, I think, um, you know, just uh, I guess maybe the last point I would ask you um, is this idea that these sort of processes are inevitable you know, that of course there's going to be the imposition of, um, you know, quote unquote, smart technology and facial recognition within policing systems. Um, the work of Electronic Frontier Foundation, and of course, many other organizations, um, you know, uh, International Civil Liberties Monitoring Association in Canada, many other groups, Amnesty, of course, are tracking these issues. And then also there's the very critical work of defund the police coalitions that are questioning mm -hmm. policing budgets um, and also that private public sort of infrastructure where companies are actually advocating for increased police budgets so they can make money from yep. the purchase of new technologies. But I guess the question I have is just about like what you've laid out and like all the reports tracking this um, you know, and mainstream media has tracked this to some degree. Um, there's also this sense of like, well, what interventions can actually work to slow this down or to halt, you know, funding in this direction or halt facial recognition in this city. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the EFF and, you know, all the sister organizations around and actually having that impact to 
show the capacity of like community organizing or, you know, larger organizations to actually change the course of this policy. It's not just happening. There's like, there's a push and pull. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a bit about that. Yeah, no. So, so I, I should say that, in a, and, and I'll be transparent that my, my, I, I am personally, as, as I am personally an abolitionist. EFF is not an abolitionist organization, right? Um, and and I, I run a, I, I, part of my job at EFF is that I oversee a network or I help coordinate a network of grassroots and community and student-based groups around the country, some of which are abolitionists and some are not, right? And they actually, there's three, they largely are, some of them are advocacy groups, some of them are like hacker and makerspace groups. And some are folks that like, are do what I call popular education. So training their, their community, folks in their community, their neighbors on how to make more informed choices in the way that they engage with technology. Um, but even, you know, but, but get, with, with the, with, with the um, kind of like understanding that EFF is not an abolitionist organization, I do think that especially the work that we've been doing around community control over police surveillance is very much in, um, works very well in tandem with our allies who are abolitionists and who are moving forward, like kind of like the, the, defund the, the defund the police movement. And the reason I say that it works really well is because it creates the opportunity for the conversation that can limit the funding, that can, that can make it people aware and have like informed conversations around the impact that policing is having in their community. So by having something like the community control police surveillance source that I just mentioned, that gives an opportunity for the community to say, no, we do not want that money to be spent in that way. Right. And it gives, you know, and, and you know, in and, and mind you, I have allies who are who are also abolitionists who, who feel very strongly that um, ordinances like the community control over police surveillance ordinances um, justify surveillance. Right. Like they 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 that they somehow whitewash the surveillance to say like, oh, well, the community had an opportunity to listen to, to vote and. And, and they approved it, right? So therefore, it's okay that we're using the surveillance this way. Um, and you know, and they're not they're not at hundred percent wrong. But the thing, the problem, the problem is the, the 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 is that right now the community has no voice in that process, right? And so we so we need to so we need to create the opportunities for the communities to have a, a voice in that process. And then also, you know, I like I far too often, like in New York, New York, is, NYPD tried, they passed the Post Act a couple of years ago, which is a, a kind of like a, a watered down version of a community controller police surveillance ordinance. They say the NYPD fought it so hardly, right? And they, you know, they were like, oh, well then like the bad guys will know which kind of technology we have and they'll do what they need to do to thwart the use of the technology and what have you. And here's the thing. Um, if I, as, as I am, not if I am, as, as, a, as a, you know, New Yorker, as an advocate, for years, I've been saying like to neighbors, to community members, like, look at all these wild, like the, 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 the ways that our privacy and our security are being negatively impacted by these technologies that the NYPD is using. But I sound like Chick Little, right? Because I'm like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling because it's been so opaque what technologies these departments have, right? And so at the very least, before we get into the accountability measures, the transparency so that I can say, this look at this technology. This is how they're using it. This is what, and then we can have an actual informed conversation about whether or not it's appropriate. And so, so yeah, I do think we need to we need to continue to have conversations around the ways that policing exists exist in our communities and what police are actually there to be doing, right? And I, but I, and I think that we start and we create the opportunity for those conversations by creating more opportunities for the community to be empowered in those decision-making processes. You've been listening to an interview with Nation Sheard, uh, who works with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. As you heard, we talked about facial recognition systems 
and the ways that um, police systems uh, have been challenged for their use of facial recognition. Also, how facial recognition systems, in terms of the databases and the coding that has gone into them, has have in many ways deepened uh, systemic racism. There's been an important challenge to facial recognition across the U.S., and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has been key in that process. It's an evolving situation, so I wanted to document where things are at right now, and I was lucky to be able to speak with Nathan Sheard of Electronic Frontier Foundation in the Bay Area, who I originally know from um, activist networks um, in New York City. Uh, I'd encourage you to check out uh, EFF, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org. Uh, there's some text up there specifically about facial recognition with which uh, Nathan helped write. So check those out. Uh, this has been Free City Radio for the 3rd of November. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, we broadcast a new edition every week here on CKT, People Powered Radio in Montreal. We also share a podcast uh, every Tuesday, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts. Just search Free City Radio. Um, and uh, get in touch. Uh, spread the word about the show. Um, and to go out, I wanted to uh, share a piece of music uh, that I recently heard on Radio Hara, which I thought was awesome. So... Um, I will just uh, go to that. Uh, we are going to hear a piece by Rakia Taore. I'll be back next week on Wednesday with another edition of Free City Radio. Keep it locked on People Powered Radio 90.3 FM, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care.